Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so I'm working on a sermon series, going to be working through the next couple of weeks, entitled The Pilgrim's Way. And it begins with what we talked about last week. If you were with us, great. If you didn't, you can catch up. Uh, The service is still there. I invite you to go back and look at it. Because last week, we talked about that in baptism, we have been made, very plainly and bluntly, a new creation. I'm not here for any arguments about, well, what if I did this or what if I did that? No, the scriptures say that if you are in Christ, if we have been joined to Christ and his cross through the waters of baptism, we are a new creation. In that water, God has made us new regardless of how you feel about it because God said it. And in that baptism, we said the word is pronounced over us. It's God's word claiming us and calling us to a new way of being in the world. And we talked about how water is the symbol of life, that it's not just sort of this box that God We need help. And because we are human, we need help in all kinds of ways, which means humans need tools. If there is one thing that makes us human, it is probably, besides intellect, we're doing or getting but for being and becoming. Prayers are tools for being and becoming. Perhaps this surprises us, but it's true. We need tools for becoming. And one of the great criticisms I hear of modern culture isn't that we have all these different tools and all these technologies. It's that because we haven't thought enough about the tools we need for becoming something, we have used other tools that weren't meant for that and tried to use them as tools of becoming. And that has been a problem. So some of you are like, what are you talking about, Sam? Well, here, because as a a culture we have neglected prayer... We have found other tools, might I suggest one, and every one of my online people is going to yell at me. Social media does this a lot, particularly Instagram. We try to use Instagram to paint a picture of who we are. We started using it as a tool of becoming when that's not what it's designed to do. And so we curate this perceived self, which is different than who we actually are. When I do social media, I only have to let you see what I want you to see, which is not authentic. It doesn't mean it's false. It's just not authentic to who I am. Because I don't know about you, but I've never once put, I don't think, I've ever once put like a blatant sin on my social media feed. But I am a sinner. So we need tools that do a better job than the tools the world has given us. And the good news is we've been toting around tools, the proper tools forever. At the center of our being technology we find the Psalms. So Dot, when you were going off this morning about the Psalms, I was like, I'm not going to give my sermon series away, but you were spot on in Sunday school this morning. The first thing that the Psalms teach us is that prayer is always best positioned as a response to what God is already doing because that's how they were written. God did something, Israel responded to it in word. It sorted out how it felt through words. The Psalms are the prayers that were prayed by the people of God who were living in relationship with God. And as such, they paint a roadmap for us of what it looks like positively and negatively, sometimes with success and sometimes with failure, but nevertheless, the Psalms show us what it looks like to live in relationship with God. But these tools are unique in that we don't just use them. 
This is, of course, one of the great criticisms of mainline Protestant Christianity and other traditions. That we, and people will criticize us saying, well, you just say the words, you don't mean them or you don't, you don't think about them. Well, if we're doing that, we are doing it wrong. I will join that criticism. But these tools aren't just things to be said because prayer is also primarily an act of the imagination. Prayer demands imagination. Because in our prayers, we are invited to imagine God. To imagine that God is interested in me. That there is a different way of being human than the way that we sort of assume is quote-unquote normal. For any of us to make any spiritual progress whatsoever, we've got to have a certain sense of imagination to say, there is something else yet to be discovered, and that is imagination. One author writes, The non-praying world is a pushing, shoving, demanding world. Voices within and without harass, insisting that we look at this picture, read this headline, listen to this appeal, feel this guilt, touch this charm. What he's saying is that the world is screaming at us constantly to keep our attention focused so that we won't use our imaginations. We just assume that this pushing, shoving, demanding world is all there is. When the scriptures tell us something very, very different. But so often, Christians, intimidated by the world around us, allow our imagination to shrink so that we don't use our imaginations. And when we don't use our imaginations, we don't pray well. And even as a congregation, without a healthy imagination, we won't pray well. And if we don't pray well, then we won't do our, the most creative and courageous work that we are called to do in the world because our imagination is shrunk, and therefore we can't imagine what it is that God might be doing outside of my own very narrow vision. If Apostle Paul were here, he might tell a people with low imagination, he says, remember, we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't see these things right off the bat as we set out on the road of prayer. So we have to imagine them with our minds and our souls and our bodies that there is a different way of being. And so we risk living into them with some kind of courage and hope. But we've got to work the imagination. And so on this journey of prayer that the Psalms want to take us on, Psalm 1 and 2, which Nancy read for us this morning, sit at the trailhead. They are the place to begin. They are not actually prayer per se because they are not addressed to God. They are not prayer per se, but what they are is they're sort of, you ever gone on a hike and you walk up to the trail here and there's a board and it usually says, don't feed the bears kind of thing? That's what these psalms are intended to do. Now, friends, be aware, they were not the first two psalms written. We don't have Psalm 1 was the earliest psalm and Psalm 150 was the latest psalm. No, no, no. They weren't the first two written. What the people of God discovered is that as the psalms were collected and put into a single book, these communities recognized that these psalms set a tone for those who were ready to set out on the journey of prayer. These two psalms orient us to a new way of thinking about the world. They get our imagination stirred, and they stir our imaginations primarily through the use of the word blessed. Blessed is intended for us to be a directional antenna, a mindset for picking up signals that we otherwise might miss along the path because the world is screaming at us so much. Because friends, we don't know yet the contents 
of what blessedness means as we set out on this journey. As we read Psalm 1, he says, blessed are such and such. And we're like, well, I don't really know what that means, but that's okay. But we sense that we are entering into a way on which we will become more our true selves, not less, not other. We become our true selves. And the way that we're going to discover that is by looking out for those things which God will describe as blessed. The anticipation of being blessed works changes in us that make us capable of being blessed. When we're looking for blessings, we discover that we start to grow towards blessing. And so we won't break all these psalms down all the way. We'll just kind of fly through them very quickly. But Psalm 1 gives us these two wonderful images. The first is meditation, and the second is this wonderful image, my favorite image in all of Scripture, of a tree. First with meditation. Friends, we have a robust, beautiful tradition of meditation that we have to recover from at least a generation of two of people who seeded that, who said that was a little too weird, and we sort of let some Eastern religions have all the meditative, interesting meditative stuff. When in fact, Christians have been invested in meditation for centuries. So we need to recover it if we're going to live in today's world. But meditation is not for getting us out of our bodies. It's not for having this out-of-body experience or getting in touch with our souls. No, our meditation says we want you to be present to the world that you currently live in. Just as Jesus was incarnate and made flesh, so the word is to become flesh in us. And meditation is the tool that implants the word in our minds, our souls, and our bodies. As Israel understood it, what meditation is, is not just thinking, it is actually speaking. A better word might actually be murmuring. And so as they would read the Psalms, they would get themselves into a position, they would, their bodies would be ready for worship, and then they would actually speak the words. Not just hear them in their head, as we so often do in a Western culture, but they would actually murmur them, would say them. And that literally puts the word of God on our tongues and in our throats and going past our teeth and coming up out of our lungs. All of a sudden, the word is coming up out of our bodies. Eugene Peterson says, meditation is a bodily action involving murmuring and mumbling words, taking a kind of physical pleasure in making the sounds of the words. This is not so much an intellectual process, trying to figure out its meanings, as it is a physical process hearing and rehearing these words as we sound them again, letting the sounds sink into our muscles and into our bones. When the word that God has already placed in our heart is integrated with our tongues and our lips, over time it will integrate with our minds and with our actions as well. And what Psalm 1 wants us to know as we set out on the journey is blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and meditates on it, murmurs it, Day and night. And so friends, we don't have to be Bible scholars. We don't have to be intellectual geniuses to just let the word of God pass through our bodies in our minds and let it sink more fully into our souls. And the second image is that of a tree. We suspect that prayer begins with a mystical or supernatural environment, and so we often find ourselves looking for the best environment to pray, right? We're like, well, I'm going to go to the really pretty church, or I'm going to go to a gravesite, or I'm going to go to a pilgrimage site. And while these are all excellent places to pray, and we encourage you to do that, and I have my own special places to pray, Psalm 1 says, no, be more like a tree. Just sit down, be planted where you're at, and get to work. We are not launched into the life of prayer by making ourselves more heavenly, but by immersing ourselves in the earthy, 
by paying attention to trees and toads, mountains and mosquitoes. Friends, abstraction kills prayer. If the life of faith is to seep in our bones, we need to imagine that here, wherever your here is, your family, your house, your church, your community, here is a good place to pray. Don't always be trying to reach to heaven. Remember, our whole faith is that heaven's coming to earth. You don't have to reach up. God's reaching down. So you reach down too and be present where you are. And God is chipping away all that keeps us away from him to reveal the real us. We too, whether we know it or not, are planted by streams of water. We will be well fed. We're going to be okay. And we're going to be able to weather this for the long term. Meditation and tree, these two beautiful images, against which stands Psalm 2. These are intended to clash. So if you're like, so when Nancy switched over and you're like, that's really strong language, they don't feel like they go together good. You heard it right. Because Psalm 2 does a different work, but a similarly imaginative one. Meditation in Psalm 2 is still the order of the day. But it's meditation gone awry. And that is what is fun. The psalm begins, why do the people still plot in vain? Here's what's interesting. The word meditate that is translated in Psalm 1 is the exact same word for plot in Psalm 2. Meditation in one, plot in another, same idea. You see, friends, we can meditate on a lot of things that aren't good for us. Meditation is not just a universal good. What we meditate on matters, and that's what the psalmist wants us to know. It's the same action, the same murmuring, the same thinking. Where is your delight? What is going on? But where in Psalm 1, we see the blessed meditating on the work and word of God. In Psalm 2, we get the murmurings of a very different kind of people. People plotting against the word, devising schemes for getting rid of God's influence so that we can be free of God and do whatever we want in our lives. And what the psalmist lays out is like, y'all, if you think the people who meditate on things that aren't healthy are just a small group, no, no, no. The people who do this meditating in Psalm 2 are impressive and they are numerous. And oh, by the way, a lot of them are prosperous. And this is where our imagination wants to shrink. We're like, well, if this is the way of the world, if it seems to us that the powerful and the rich and the well-connected are the ones who get their way, well, then what good is prayer? This is the question Psalm 2 asks. What good is it to meditate on blessedness if the world's just going to have its way anyway? What chance does meditation under a tree have against powers and principalities of this world? What good does imagination have against cultural trends, against the overwhelming tide of activity in people's lives? So often the world wants to intimidate us, and intimidation is as fatal to prayer as distraction is. If we are intimidated, if we are believed we are defeated before we set out, we'll never get there, which is why we need imagination. And imagination is required that is large enough to believe that powers and principalities, banks and politics are not the biggest reality about ourselves. God is. And that's the point of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 gives us one who will work on our behalf. The Messiah invades the secular. God is at war with all these trends. God enters a world where people go to school, where they make war, where they, as one other said, where they go to Chicago. God's word is not only what we meditate on in the scriptures, it takes shape in history and action and in a person. 
And our sacred texts are full of a story of Messiah where God intervened and created a new way of being in the world, a new reality where it didn't seem possible that any could be made. Ultimately, it culminates in the cross of Christ, yes, where Jesus submits to religious authority. Jesus submits to political authority. And in doing so, creates a new world where you can be a new creation. God's imagination is always bigger than our own. And to this end, because God sees something bigger, God does two things in this psalm. The first one that God does is laugh. God laughs at the world's rulers. And sometimes we should laugh too. Because laughter restores perspective. There is such a thing as taking the world's arrogance too seriously. God laughs, we can laugh as well. Because our answers are so foolish in light of what God has prepared for us.